The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 with me this morning. If you've been with us for a while, your Bible may just open there automatic at this point. We've sort of gotten entrenched in chapter 6 of Luke here. This morning we're going to give attention to verses 43 through 45 of Luke chapter 6. These are the words of Christ as recorded by Luke. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's the word of the Lord for us today. You know, these days it's getting very, very difficult to decipher between what is real and what's fake. Have you noticed that? It's getting very difficult to know what's true and what's false. Uh, it seems like we are inundated in our lives from every direction from things that are false that uh, present themselves to be true, from things that are fake that present themselves to be genuine and real. The phone rings at your house and you answer the phone and the voice on the other end says, did you know your car warranty is about to expire? We're here to help you. Is my car warranty about to expire? Most likely not, and neither is yours. But those people will find you wherever you are and tell you that that's the case. When you open your email box, it's flooded with spam and scam emails, right? Your friend from high school is stuck in Nigeria. They need you to wire them $3,000 so that they can escape because their life is in imminent danger. They've exhausted every resource and now reached out to you for help, right? Is it true? Is it false? Some of them are compelling. When we turn on the television or we flip on the computer and look on the internet and we look in our email box and we try to read the news, how do you know what's true and what's not? Where's the real news that's actual news? And where's the, the fake news? It seems like the fake is all around. What is, what is legitimate and what is not? How do we know what's real and what's true? How do we know that up against what's fake and what's false? What information can we trust? What people can we trust speaking into our world to know that what they tell us is real and what they tell us is true and what they tell us is accurate? versus people who have agendas or are lying to us, trying to manipulate us. It's never been more apparent, I don't think, at least in a news sense, than going through the COVID-19 pandemic. Has there ever been a time when it's been harder to know what's true and what's not? Has there ever been a time when it's been harder to know what's accurate news and what's just spin and lies and manipulation? When government officials stand in front of a, ca a camera and lie directly to us 
about things, it's hard to know who to trust. What sources can we trust? What information can we trust? What things can we trust? I remember when I was deployed to Bahrain, there was a place called Gold City. It was a little sort of a shopping, two-level shopping mall kind of a thing. There was nothing but jewelry stores in there. And uh, you could go to any one of the jewelry stores. They sold jewelry, and many of them sold lots of watches. And, and uh, when they saw you were an American coming up, uh, they sort of sized you up and uh, made some, some, some assumptions about you. And when you would get to the counter, they would have a bunch of things displayed in the counter, but they would say, never mind the things displayed in the counter, and they would reach underneath the, the desk and they would pull out other boxes of things, and they would open them and show them to you. Look at this beautiful Rolex. You can have it for $75, brand new. Is that a real Rolex? It's not a real Rolex. It's made in Singapore. But it looks like a real Rolex. If you were to put it on your wrist and walk around, nobody would ever know the difference between that and a real Rolex. But it's fake. It isn't real. Coming up on the Christmas season, and if you've already turned your radio to Y102.5, you can hear Christmas music now already unless you are like my son who is absolutely in protest against that until after Thanksgiving. But Christmas is coming. And most of you are probably going to put up a Christmas tree in your home. Some of you will get a real one. And some of you will get what kind? Yeah, a fake one. But once you decorate it all up and you put the tinsel on, you put the ornaments on, and you put all the things on it, from a distance, can you really tell the difference between a real tree and a fake tree when they're all decorated up? Not from a distance. Some people can spot it. But as you start to get a little closer, you can tell the difference, right? There are signs. There are signs. There are things you can look for that help you spot the real from the fake. You see the branches and you see the needles up close. You see the falling needles at the bottom. You smell a particular smell when you get around the real one. And you can tell the difference. But all around us are real things and fake things. True things and false things. And quite often, they look very, very similar from outward appearance. How is it that we're to know the difference? Well, the, the same thing is true in the kingdom of God and with the citizens of the kingdom of God. It's quite difficult at times to know who is genuinely saved in a part of the kingdom of God and who is not. Quite often, the two groups have similarities, have some things in common. From the outside, look quite the same, but on the inside are absolutely polar opposite. The text that we have before us this morning, Jesus addresses this issue. How is it that we're to tell the real from the fake? How is it that we're to identify the genuine from the copy? And he means for us to make a primary application of this to our own hearts. There is a temptation when we come to a text like this to think in terms of other people or the people around us. And that's not altogether out of, this, out of the scope of, of, the, of the text. We, there is an application outside of ourselves. But the application is primarily to ourselves first to ask the question, what am I? Am I real or am I fake? What am I? Am I genuine or am I just a cheap knockoff? Trying to sell myself off is the real thing. That's the primary question. And then the secondary application, I guess, is for those around us 
and particularly those who set themselves up above us as teachers or leaders. But there's been a problem since the, the church has been the church and long before the church was the church in the Old Testament days when God's people were the nation of Israel there was always a challenge between knowing the real from the false and, and, and having false converts or people who look like they're part of the kingdom but actually are not is a problem and having false teachers who propose to speak for the king but don't is a whole other problem, but they're related. The problem of false converts Jesus deals with in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, and he explains to us how grave of a real reality this is and how deep the deception can go. Because he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, that's the day of judgment, many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, never knew you. You're fake. You're a fraud. You're a knockoff. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's talking to people who self-identify with him and who self-identify with his church, but who are not real. They're deceived. They're, they're blind to the reality of their own souls. They fooled themselves, and they fooled many people around them. And they've infiltrated the church, and they often create all sorts of havoc. Or they just coast under the radar and blend in with the crowd. In either case, it's an issue that needs to be addressed, and so Jesus addresses the issue. And, and it, it becomes even more of a grave problem when people who fit into that category uh, find themselves entrenched in the life of a local church and then over time rise to levels of leadership. It now comes from being just a personal danger to being a corporate danger. Because the influence that comes with leadership allows them to lead other people astray. And it's clear, I think, that at least in part, Jesus has this group in mind here. If you were to look at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 7, you see that Matthew records this part of Jesus' sermon, but he includes something else that Jesus said in proximity to this. Look at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7. There, Matthew records Jesus saying this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits, or grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from a thistle. That's how, that last part sounds exactly like what Luke was saying, a recording of Jesus here. But Luke doesn't record Jesus saying that first piece. piece Matthew does. It's likely Jesus delivered this same message or some variation of it in multiple settings and probably applied it in different ways. But I think at least here Luke has given us a clue that he does have in, in mind at least somewhat this same group. If you were to look back in Luke chapter 6 where we're studying, just a few verses back in verse 39 and 40, Luke records that he also told them a parable. Can a, a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? That's about leadership. He says a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So he's already introduced the idea that there are false teachers and that there are blind teachers who are, who are not legitimate teachers, but will, will lead other unsuspecting people into a pit. And I think it's here that he comes back to that same issue again. 
because likely in the crowd to whom Jesus is speaking and Luke is recording, there was a mix of people. There were people who were the fake mixed in with the real, and there were leaders, people who had set themselves up as leaders, who were in fact false teachers. And Jesus, I believe, is speaking to both. As long as God has had true prophets and true teachers who have spoken for him and represented him in the world, there have been fakes and there have been frauds and there have been counterfeits. You can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, really at the very beginning of your Bible, and you see that this is a problem. God tells his people, Israel, how to sort that out in that particular day. In verses 1 through 5 of Deuteronomy 13, he says, If a prophet or a daydreamer, excuse me, a dreamer of dreams, arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of dreams. The Lord your God's testing you to know whether you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you'll serve him and you'll hold fast to him. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord, your God, commanded you to walk. So you'll purge the evil from your midst. God took this issue very, very seriously. Somebody comes along and tells you that they speak for me and they start leading you off the path that I've defined, you kill them. You kill them. It's, that's, it's deadly serious. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah in the Old Testament echo the same sort of sentiments from the Lord. They repeatedly warn against false teachers. Shortly before Jesus' death, he warned again about this issue in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4. He says this. He says, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Christ, and, many, and, and they'll deceive many. For false Christs, false prophets will appear They'll perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. When Paul was in Rome, he warned the church at Rome in Romans 16. He said the following, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving the Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the minds of naive people. And we could track this all throughout the New Testament. We could track John talking about it. We could track Paul mentioning this over and over. We could mention the many times Jesus speaks to the issue. And we see this issue of false teachers coming up over and over. They're referred to by many names in the New Testament. Sometimes they're called false brothers, false apostles, false teachers, false speakers, false witnesses, false Christ. But they're all the same people. People who pass themselves off as speaking for the Lord, who in fact speak for Satan. There's always been a large market for false teachers, um, and that's why they always exist, because there are always people who want to hear what false teachers have to sell. Most people, in reality, do not want to hear the truth. They prefer to hear something that's happy and something that's uplifting, even if it's false and even if it's dangerous to their soul. And so false teachers always have a market. But what makes them particularly dangerous is that they too claim to speak for God. And they are 
quite often capable of fooling a lot of people. Jeremiah spoke of this in his day in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. He says this. He says, a horrible, shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And get this. My people love it that way. It's not bad enough that the prophets are liars. It's not bad enough that the priests are ruling by their own authority rather than the Lord's authority. But the people love it that way. False teachers are not just, uh, not just wrong, they're dangerous. They're not simply good people who are mistaken, they're dangerous. That's why Jesus compared them to wolves who are prowling, seeking an innocent victim to devour. And so it's an, it's an issue that matters. We have to be able to discern between the false and the true. Who are the people that belong to the kingdom of God and who are the people who don't, who just pass themselves off as though they do? Who are the teachers who propose to speak for the Lord Jesus that are real and who are the ones that are cheap knockoffs, that are fakes, that prophesy and teach lies? Now it's interesting that Jesus comes to this issue in this context because we've just been studying in recent weeks something that he said previous to this in the same message where he challenged us not to be people who are judgmental, right? We all got sort of kicked in the shins as we walked through those, didn't we? About what it means to not be sinfully judgmental. But here, he's turning our attention to a similar issue. While we're not to be judgmental in in a sinful sort of a way, there is a call to be discerning. And there is a call to be wise. And there is a right and true and legitimate way to look at ourselves and make an evaluation and to look at other people and to make an evaluation. And we dare not overlook that. And we dare not avoid it. We are to decipher between who are true believers, genuine citizens of the kingdom of God, and who are false believers, citizens of the kingdom of the world. We are to discern between who are the true teachers for the Lord and who are the false since we're accountable for discerning and understanding those things, how are we to tell the difference, you might ask? And so Jesus comes to that question and he answers it with very familiar imagery to anybody who would have listened to him in his original delivery of this message. He says, essentially, you want to know how you tell the difference? The way you tell the difference is the same way that you tell the difference between trees and bushes. They have fruit and they have roots. There's something about a tree and something about a bush that in essence makes it what it is. It, 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 it's rooted in some, some essence and some reality that defines its nature. And then it bears fruit in keeping with that essence or with that nature. And the two things are related. And Jesus is going to compare trees to people. That's what he does here. And he's going to show us two things. He's going to show us how the root of a tree determines the kind of fruit that it's going to bear. And he's going to show us that we can look at the fruit of a tree and get some sense for the nature of the essence of the root of the tree. It works both ways. And together, we discern what a tree is. And together, we'll discern what a person is. Now, we could apply this in a multitude of different ways. Um, I, I was reading recently about folks who... Uh, who finding and discovering and prosecuting counterfeit money laundering and the people who have trained themselves to identify counterfeit money particularly dollar bills 
They don't spend years and years examining and becoming experts at every kind of fraud. They spend a long, long time becoming experts at the real thing. And they become such good experts at the real thing that any fraud just immediately begins to stand out. And so we're going to look at this text that way. We're going to ask the question, what is genuine salvation? What does it look like at its root? And then what does it look like in the fruit that it bears? And if we can understand that, then we can rightly diagnose ourselves and make sure that we are the right thing. And when we understand it clearly, we'll be able to also identify the false, the fake, the cheap knockoff. So let's take it in those ways, okay? The first piece, the root of the fruit. And we're going to just give one, one simple statement about this. Genuine salvation is an issue of the heart. Real, legitimate, authentic Christianity is an issue of the heart. He gets to that at the beginning here. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit. And again, uh, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes and grapes are not picked from a bramble bush. Again, in Matthew 7, Matthew's account for this, he says the same thing. We read the first part of that a moment ago. He says at the end of that piece, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And if you just write in your notes, Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, he comes back to that issue again later on in Matthew's gospel. But Jesus used a very clear illustration here. It's the illustration of a tree and its fruit. And he says something that's very, very simple and very, very easy to understand. Good trees bear what kind of fruit? They bear good fruit. Bad trees bear what kind of fruit? Bad. Or if you want to use the language that Matthew used in his record of it, diseased trees bear what kind of fruit? Diseased fruit, right? A healthy tree is going to bear healthy fruit. Good, healthy trees do not bear infected, rotten fruit, and vice versa. So the reality of the unseen root of the tree determines the kind of fruit that it's going to bear. It's the issue. And you don't need a PhD in horticulture to understand the illustration. Every tree produces its own kind of fruit. Right? I'm going to show you some pictures here. Actually, Tina's going to show you some pictures here. What kind of tree is this here? That would be a lemon tree, in case you're, you need to see your optometrist. That is what kind of a tree? It's an apple tree. That's an apple tree. No, no, lemon was before that. That was apple. Okay, this is a tree, but it's got strung along it some, what kind of vines? Grape vines, right? You look at those things and you immediately know what they are, right? Now, the lemon tree in the first picture. Would you ever walk by that lemon tree and wonder, I wonder if it's going to produce some apples this year? You'd never expect that. Why? Because it's a lemon tree. It's not an apple tree. You'd never walk by the apple tree and you would never wonder, I wonder if it's going to drop some grapefruits in the harvest this year, right? Why is that? Because it's an apple tree and apple trees don't bear grapefruits. Lemon trees don't bear apples. Grapevines don't bear figs. It's a very simple illustration. Every tree produces its own kind of fruit. And a farmer never gets the wrong kind of fruit from the right kind of tree, and he never gets the right kind of fruit from the wrong kind of tree. Because there's something about that tree in its essence that determines what kind of fruit it's going to bear. And of course, the imagery here Jesus is concerned about is not trees, and it's not horticulture, and it's not farming. It's people. 
And the point he's making is this, that every person produces the kind of fruit that's in our hearts to grow. That our lives are like trees in the sense that we produce visible fruit in our lives by the way we behave, by the way that we act, by the character that we display, by the words that we speak. All that is on display for the world to see. But those things are not determinative of themselves. They grow out of something. There's something that we are in our hearts that produces all of that. We're either good and healthy in heart and producing good and healthy fruit, or we're diseased and unhealthy, producing rotten fruit. Whatever it is that we produce in our life, good or evil, it's rooted in the condition of our hearts. The issue is the heart. Genuine salvation is primarily an issue of the heart. We've been working through Matthew 6, and we've been listening to Jesus explain to us sort of the character values of his kingdom. And all of those character values come back to heart issues. He's talking to us about not judging. He's talking to us about loving our enemy and, and, and doing good for those who persecute us. All of those things are behavioral things, but he roots them back to heart issues. And the, the, the reality is that the way you do those things, or the only way that those things ever become a reality in your, in your life, is if Christ has transformed your heart. If you're a genuine believer, that kind of fruit doesn't come out of an unsaved heart. God is primarily interested with our hearts first. He's not interested just in reforming our behavior. He's not just interested in getting us to act different than we act right now. What Christ is after in your life is to capture and to transform your heart. Coming to Jesus for salvation is not a matter of just simply behaving better. It's not just a matter of reading your Bible and coming to church and going to small groups and quitting bad habits and, 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 and those sorts of things. None of those things are bad or evil, and we'll talk about that at some point, but none of those things in themselves constitute saving faith. They're all behavioral. Being saved, repenting of our sin, and entrusting our lives to Jesus is not just a matter of trying to be better people or trying to bear good fruit. That's not the issue. In order to come to Christ, what needs to happen is the... The, the roots of our sinful, rebellious tree have to be uprooted and Christ replants a new heart that will bear good fruit. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this, beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The futility of their thinking, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. But you, however, did not come to Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted, and to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, to put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If God has transformed your, your heart, then you're going to put off your old behavior and put on a new self, a new life. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin. Paul's making the case to the church at Rome that genuine salvation occurs when we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of our sin, genuinely broken for our failure to honor him, recognizing our own absolute inability to please him or to reform ourselves, and recognizing that we are completely, 100%, totally dependent upon him to uproot the, the sinful, diseased roots of our heart and to replant a living, healthy tree inside of us. make us alive to him and dead to our old self. That's what salvation is. It's not just a matter of coming to him, trying to earn it through good works, trying to bear good fruit on the outside. It's coming to him and understanding that my problem primarily is not my behavior, although that may be problematic, the problem that I have that's the worst is that I have a rotten, diseased, sin-saturated heart that's driving all this stuff in my life. And I can't just be a better person. And I can't just start doing religious things. I have to repent of that sin, die to that self, and ask Christ to make me come alive and give me a new heart. That's what it means to be saved. Good fruit is the result of a good tree. It's not the cause of it. It's the heart that Christ is concerned about then, and it's the heart that Christ is still concerned about now. If you're here today and you're counting on externals to save you, you need to understand that you're seriously mistaken. There's nothing you can do on the outside that can transform the heart. Christ has to transform the heart. If you think coming to church makes you a Christian, it doesn't. If you think listening to me saves you, it doesn't. If you think just reforming your behavior will save you, it won't. I just put you in the category of those who hear Lord, Lord, or say Lord, Lord, who hear. You're a knockoff, a cheap, fake. Depart from me. So the root has to be right for the fruit. And genuine salvation always starts with a transformed heart. But that's not all there is to hear here. When salvation is genuine, and when we've truly been redeemed by the blood of Christ and we're genuinely saved, it will always produce fruit. So salvation is, is, is always primarily a matter of the heart, but when it's genuine and when it's real, it always produces evidence in the life and in the behavior. It always produces fruit in keeping with that internal transformation. And so Jesus says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. And so here he's saying to us this. You can look at your own life and you can look at the other, uh, other people's lives. And when you evaluate your life and you evaluate your character, it becomes plain to see to everybody what the condition of the soul is if you watch long enough. Because genuine salvation always shows up in good, healthy fruit bearing in the life. It always does. And a rotten, unhealthy, diseased heart will always also show up in the fruit of the life. The fruit of a person's life exposes the root condition of the heart. Maybe you could say it that way. 
the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good well this theme runs all through scripture genuine saving faith always produces good fruit I'll give you a couple of examples Jesus, excuse me, John the Baptist in Matthew 3 in his preaching said this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. If you're the real thing, if you are who you say you are, then do what? Produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. See, he knew them, and he knew the, 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 the life that they lived and the fruit of their life was diseased and unhealthy and rotten. showed up in the fruit Jesus says in John 15 18 this is to my father's glory that you bear much what fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples how do you show yourself that you're a disciple of Christ Christ you, you bear much fruit bear much fruit how did you know the lemon tree picture I showed you was a lemon you saw the fruit and he made a fair assessment Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're God's workmanship. God has created us that we might be transformed in the image of his Son, and in doing so, that we might do good works, that we might bear fruit. So what is the fruit that's born out of genuine saving faith? Galatians chapter 5, familiar passage, verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's quite a list of, of fruit, isn't it? It's a list of rotten, diseased, bad fruit that grows out of a rotten, diseased heart. Probably all of us can remember a time when that was the fruit of our own lives. And we liked it that way. But Jesus goes on to say, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. peace, It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. What does the fruit of the redeemed heart look like? What does it look like? What is, how does it show up in the life when a person is truly transformed by the grace of God in Christ? It looks like where there used to be, where there used to be hatred, there's now a growing love. Where there used to be a, a settled sort of a discouragement and depression and misery. There's now a growing presence of joy. It looks like where there used to be a, a, a settled uh, lack of, 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 of peace, that the peace is now beginning to blossom in the life. Where there used to be anger and rage and flying off the handle, there's now a, a, a growing sense of, of, of patience and of kindness and of gentleness. Where there used to be no ability to control lust and passion in life, sinful lust and sinful passion, there's a growing ability to practice self-control in the face of temptation. 
This is what the fruit looks like of a redeemed heart. Throughout the New Testament, we get other fruits, love for our brothers, brokenness for the lost, love for the truth, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a desire to be a part of the body of Christ, a gradual pattern of, of, of decline in old sinful behaviors, and a gradual increase of righteousness and holiness in life. That's what it looks like to bear fruit in keeping with righteousness. That's what it looks like when the soul and the heart is redeemed. When the root is right, that's the kind of fruit that begins to be born in the life. The good man who has a good heart bears good fruit. And vice versa. I can remember growing up in Southern Baptist Church life, we would always have once or twice a year revival meetings and they would invite in evangelists to come and preach for those things. And I can remember a number of those coming along and as a kid, terrifying me, uh, uh, trying to make me sort of question my own faith and my own salvation. And one of the ways, one of the tactics that they would use quite often is, you know, uh, tell me the date and the time and the place where you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Heavy emphasis on dates and times and places. Looking to some profession. You know what, if I want to know about your spiritual life, I don't need to ask you about the date and the time and the place where you made a profession of faith. What I really want to know is, what's the fruit of your life this month? What does it look like to be you right now? What's the fruit that's coming out of your world? If I see lemons, I know it's a lemon tree. If I, know, if I see righteousness in your character and your behavior, then that's evidence that you possess saving faith. And if I see the opposite, it doesn't matter to me when you made a profession of faith. Constantly, the scriptures are telling us to look at the fruit of our lives as evidence of saving faith. Good fruit is evidence of a good root. Bad fruit consistently is an evidence of a bad, diseased, unhealthy root. And that's the reality of salvation. When we come to Christ, he transforms our heart. He makes us what we were not previously. He uproots our sinful, diseased root, and he replants us with a good, healthy root. And out of that grows a whole different kind of fruit. It begins in the heart, but it shows up in the behavior. And if the behavior doesn't reflect good fruit, then the reality is it's not a good root. Now, we're not perfect people, and we don't get it right all the time. That's not the point here. And we're not talking about perfection. What we're talking about is trends over time. Trend over time. If you've claimed to be a believer for the last 20 years, I ought to be able to evaluate your life over the last 20 years, and I ought to be able to see a decline in sinful habits and behaviors and sinful character traits and sinful speech, and I ought to be able to identify an increasing pattern of godliness and righteousness and fruit that bears fruit of saving faith. And you should be able to see that in yourself too. And if you don't see that, then the most foolish thing you can do is convince yourself that because you made a profession somewhere, you're a Christian. The wisest thing you can do is ask the question, why is the fruit of my life not lining up with what I claim to be the root? Why do I claim to be a lemon tree, but I'm bearing something altogether different? Well, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He takes it one step further. 
He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? So we have the root of the fruit, that's the heart, that has to be right and transformed by Christ. And then we have the fruit of the root, right? When it's good fruit, a good root, it bears good fruit. And just to make you more confused, we'll call this part the shoot of the fruit. That's your mouth. How do you like that for rhyming? It's terrible, I know, but it kept you awake. Our mouths expose the condition of our hearts. Isn't that a simple concept here? Like, what comes out of our mouth exposes what's happening in our hearts. This is a theme throughout the New Testament, right? And from the time you wake up and I wake up to the time we go to bed, there's a lot that comes out of our mouths. I do mean in words, primarily. Average person has about 30 conversations in a day. And the average person speaks somewhere in the neighborhood of about twelve to 16,000 words in a day. Did you know you talk that much? That's a lot of words. I mean, some of those are repeated a lot. Each day, your words could be compiled into a book of 50 to 60 pages. So you've got a whole library of words that you've spoken in your life. And the, the, the application here is quite simple, right? Not only will a person's life be shown in the behavior, the way they act, and the character they display, but one of the best ways you'll be able to see that transformation is what comes out of the mouth. I can remember in college, my roommate's name was John. We'd gone to high school together. John was a member of an Episcopal church, and I assumed John was a Christian. John was not a Christian. And I had known him all through high school, never bothered to share the gospel with him, because I, I just assumed he went to church, he did Christian things, he was a Christian. When we got, became roommates at college, um, I realized that he wasn't. He was an altar boy, but he wasn't a Christian. And so in that semester, the Lord was gracious, and he redeemed John, he saved him. And, and John's life, prior to that, it bore all the fruit of someone who was unredeemed. Living with him, I could see that. But the, the transformation of his life was, was pretty remarkable after he came to faith. God began quickly changing the fruit of his life. And one of the things I'll never forget about that, that semester that we, that we were roommates was when we were moving out of our dorm room at Clemson. We were, we were packing up all of our stuff, and this was when you had, still had, this shows my age, you still had, um, uh, you didn't really have voicemail. What were the, th like, the little boxes, you know, with tapes in them? Answering machine. That's the, what I was stretching for here. Answering machine, yeah. You didn't have actual digital voicemail. You had a little machine that answered this answering machine. Then had little tiny cassette tapes that you put in there. You record your message and people would call you and you weren't there. They'd hear your message and they would leave, they would leave their message and you'd push the button and call them back. I mean, that was, it was archaic, I know. But there was a button on our answering machine that you could, there was a memo button and you could push it and it would just record whatever you were saying. Like if you, you know, wanted to, like on your cell phone you have it now, like if you want to, oh, don't forget to go to the grocery store, you'd make it, leave yourself a memo, push that, say it, stop it, and then later you'd remember I needed to go to the grocery store. Well, when we were moving out, we decided to go through some of our old little cassette tapes and play them and just to hear the stupid things that we put on our answering machine for the message. And so we were listening and just reminiscing and laughing. Well, at some point during that semester, early on, before John had come to Christ, 
somebody in the room had hit the memo button and it was just recording the conversation in the room and nobody knew it. And so we're listening to it and it gets that part of the, of the, of the tape and you could hear John in the background. Somebody, uh, the, our roommate across the hall had done something that really ticked him off. And John had just, had just unleashed on this poor kid, you know, a, a torrent of profanity, like every word you can imagine just gushing out of him, you know, at this guy because he was so angry. And that had been, you know, early in the semester. Well, now we're at the end of the semester and John's been a believer for a number of months now. And I'll never forget the look on his face as we were listening to that and it started playing. And he heard himself talking back then. His eyes got as big as apples. And he looked at me and he said, is that what I really sounded like? I said, yeah, it's exactly what you, it's, it's you because he didn't talk like that anymore. He didn't act like that anymore because there was new fruit that is coming out of his life. And even in just a short few months, you could see the transformation very, very clearly. That's the issue that Jesus is getting at here. When salvation is real, that's what's happening in the life and in the heart. And if that transformation doesn't take place and show up in the way that we speak and the way that we act, and in the character that we display, then there's something wrong with the roots. We don't know Christ. Because when he changes our heart, he changes the fruit. It just comes out. J.C. Ryle said this, and we'll end. He said, let it be a settled principle again in our religion that when a man's general conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted. Let us not give way to the vulgar notion that although men are living wickedly, they've got good hearts at the bottom. Such notions are flatly contradictory to our Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's communication carnal, worldly, irreligious, godless, and profane? Then let us understand that that's the state of his heart. When a man's tongue is generally wrong, it's absurd no less than unscriptural to say that his heart is right. Hard and true words from an Anglican bishop. How often do we say that though, right? I know, I know what his life looks like. I know how she sounds when she talks. But she's got a good heart. He's got a good heart. Bishop Ryle would say no. No, she doesn't. No, he doesn't. His life and his words tell a different story. What about you? Do these things match up? The claim that you claim about your soul being redeemed by Christ, does it show up in the behavior and the way you live? Does it show up in the redemptive words that come out of your mouth? When people look at you and they're trying to figure out what kind of a tree you are by your behavior and your words and your attitudes and your character, is, is it as easy to see as that apple tree was easy for you to identify? Or do they have to go digging underneath every leaf and branch to try and find anything that gives evidence for what you claim? If that's the case this morning, then I want to challenge you to look at your own life in light of God's word. And ask the question, am I the real thing? Am I the real thing? Has Christ truly transformed my heart? Have I repented of my sin and trusted Jesus to save me? Or am I just a cheap knockoff? 
a Rolex made in Singapore to look like the real thing. Acceptable for others on the outside, but rotten at the core. The wisest thing you could do this morning, if that's you, is repent. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive you and to uproot that unhealthy disease root of a tree in your heart and to replant you in faith and righteousness and obedience. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know ourselves better than we know anyone else. We know the ways that we fall short of your glory. But I pray this morning, Lord, that as we look at your text and we think about these words, that you would give us clear vision of who we really are. If we claim to be, be yours, to belong to you, an honest assessment of our own lives and behavior and character and words should back that up. I pray that you'd give me and everyone in this room a very clear vision of whether those things match in our life or they don't. They're not a perfection for which we panic and fret and are anxious over every sin, but a serious and honest appraisal of our lives. Are we bearing fruit in keeping with righteousness? Or are we just cheap knockoffs? Lord, I pray that this morning we would leave this place, every man, every woman, genuinely a part of your kingdom because we've repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus. Not because we're going to church, not because we're trying to be good people. We can't be good people. Our only hope is that you would transform us into what we're not. So do that work here among us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.